Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I got involved um, in this work uh, several years ago, but uh, I, I think, you know, if you grew up in the, in the, in the Cold War, uh, in the 80s, you had a very strong sense of Catholics who were behind the Iron Curtain um, under communism, millions and millions of Catholics. And, uh, and we had a pope when I was growing up who came from behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and shortly at the, after the end of the Cold War, um, the Gulf War started. My brother was serving in Iraq in 1990, 1991, and I was 16 years old, and I remember my father saying, you know, 10% of Baghdad is Christian, and most of those Christians are Catholic. So halfway around the world, you weren't hearing anything about this in the, in the news media. A million and a half Christians in Iraq, and uh, no one said really a, a word about it, and I heard it from my father and it's one of those things you you tuck away and when I was in law school in Ann Arbor um, there were thousands of Christian refugees after the 2003 war who came flooding into the United States looking for asylum and um, the US Department of State where I later went to work would not recognize uh, a special status for those Christians and would not and many were refused asylum and turned away and their uh, danger had arisen directly as a result of uh, U.S. military intervention. And I'm not commenting on that intervention, I'm just uh, uh, one way or the other on the war. Although your generation likely argues less about the war than uh, those of us who are a little bit older. Um, but uh, my wife and I have had an ongoing 13-year debate about the Iraq War. Uh, so, um, but. Later, I found myself on the U.S. Embassy compound in Baghdad, and um, the, uh, the terrorists would lob rockets in about every hour or two just to remind the Americans that they weren't welcome. And one Saturday on the embassy compound, a uh, Chaldean Catholic priest came on to the embassy compound, said mass for some of us Catholics, and, uh, and left. And I remember watching him leave through the gates of the embassy compound and wondering how long he had to live or uh, what his life must be like outside the green zone. So um, a few years later, uh, two years later, um, the, uh, at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, there was a, an archbishop from the Middle East who came and implored Catholics to do something, to do something to help the Christians in the Middle East. And, uh, and I spent some time thinking about that. And I just I'd traveled already at that point fairly extensively throughout the Middle East. And I just started going, writing, um, and came up with a um, I guess you'd say a, a plan for an organization to um, advocate for the Christians of the Middle East and to raise awareness uh, among the American people for Christians in the Middle East. And, um, and, and I think in the absence of having millions of dollars lying around, that's just what you have to do. And you have to, uh, as uh, Father Peter Moran told Dorothy Day, you don't wait for the money, you start the work and uh, the money will come. Well, fortunately, that's what happened with uh, In Defense of Christians, that we don't have much money to speak of. Uh, but we've been successful in doing advocacy work. Uh, we've been success successful in drafting resolutions in Congress. Um, and um, we've been, uh, uh, I hope, successful in advocating for Christians. But it's a very dire 
situation, as I'm sure everybody knows, um, the Christians in Iraq, uh, once numbering um, as recently as a generation ago, 1.6 million, are down to less than 250,000. Um, in Syria, they've gone from 2 million uh, to approximately 1 million, and many of those are internally displaced. So uh, the challenges are very significant. Uh, most of the Christians find themselves caught in the middle of a Sunni-Shia civil war, which I, I think to most of you probably sounds like a very complicated thing. It's an internecine um, Muslim, intra-civilizational Muslim uh, civil war that's going on, and Christians and other groups are very much caught in, in the middle of this. And uh, so before I go any further, is there anybody here who's of Middle Eastern Christian extraction? And your name? Tim. Tim, where are you from? Where are you? Um, I'm from Michigan, but I'm Chaldean. You're Chaldean, okay. Do you know where your family's from um, in Iraq? I'm from from Tel Kef, okay. Uh, anybody else of Middle East Christian extraction? And where in Michigan, Tim? Um, Metro Detroit area. Okay, yeah. There's a lot of great, there's a wonderful Chaldean community there, wonderful people. Well, thanks for coming, Tim. Um, last summer, I was, I was in uh, Tel Askof, which is just um, a few miles from Tel Kef, uh, a few miles north. I believe Tel Kef is still occupied by ISIS. If you go a few miles north, there's a village there called Teleskef, and, uh, and I was there, and um, it looks very much like, uh, anybody here studied World War I at all? Any history majors? Uh, any Jim Gaston students, just out of curiosity? I studied World War I. Okay, okay, very good. Um, there's about a thousand kilometers uh, of front lines in Iraq, and that's, that's changing now. It's contracting, and they're moving into Mosul, and hopefully Teleskef will be liberated very soon. And one of the things that I'm proud that we've done uh, recently is to put a resolution on the floor of Congress. I think you have to be careful how you say that. Um, we helped to craft a resolution, uh, even though it was largely written uh, in the IDC conference room. Uh, it was introduced on uh, the floor of Congress. And I'm proud to say that a Franciscan alum who's a member of Congress, Jeff Fortenberry, uh, who's a friend um, of the Christians of the Middle East, and uh, uh, a friend of many of us in this room, uh, all of us in this room, uh, introduced that, and he's been a great champion for the Christians of the Middle East. But we put a resolution on the floor for the creation of a province in Nineveh um, that would uh, be protected by the international community so that the Christians who were displaced uh, in Iraq and refugees outside Iraq can return uh, to their homes, inshallah, God willing, as they say in the Middle East, and um, uh, and survive, I guess. That's, that's really what we're down to at this point. It, it really is... Uh, it's very heartbreaking because um, whether you're in um, Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or Egypt, um, different parts of Europe and even in the United States now, refugees from uh, the Middle East, Christians and others are flooding in and um, the, uh, the degree of trauma that they've, that they've endured is um, uh, more or less beyond our comprehension, I, I would say, and many of them have been living in uh, horribly undignified uh, conditions. So let's talk just briefly for a moment. Who are these uh, Christians from the Middle East? Um, I raise uh, Christopher Dawson, the uh, British Catholic historian uh, whom I was first exposed to in uh, Jim Gaston's class many years ago and uh, uh, Dawson really is fantastic but somewhere he was writing about um, the, the Western views of Christendom that we, we more or less understand Christendom to be Greek and Latin Western and Eastern and he said that the truth is that there's a third uh, pillar of Christendom which is uh, he called it Syriac 
Christendom, Middle Eastern Christianity. And uh, this is a world that's been very much forgotten, very much lost um, to us in the West. And um, one of the great challenges I think that uh, Middle East Christians face is that they have a very difficult time connecting with Western Christians. Um, their, their liturgies are ancient um, languages from the East and um, uh, Syriac languages, which are, which are, uh, of course, uh, uh, they, they still speak the tongue of, of uh, the language of our Lord. And uh, did, did you hear that in the household growing up, Tim? I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I understand modern Aramaic. You do. Okay. Yeah, I. Um, I had a really beautiful experience a couple of years ago. We crossed the border from Turkey. Um, um, southeastern Turkey, what we'd call Anatolia, but it's really Mesopotamia, and came back across and um, there was a fellow there um, who made us all kneel in Thanksgiving and he prayed in uh, the language of our Lord. He um, prayed the Our Father. And uh, it was, it was uh, a very touching moment and a beautiful conclusion to uh, what had been something of an adventure. And, um, but the, uh, but this, this entire part of the world that I'm talking about, Egypt, um, the Levant, Mesopotamia, um, the Near East, as it, as it was once called, was once uh, almost exclusively Christian. This was the heart of the uh, Greek Syriac um, early church. The Christians of Egypt, the Copts, uh, converted um, just years after. They were some of the first Christian converts. And, uh, um, so when you're, when you're kind of at the, um, the center of this encounter between especially evangelical Christians, but certainly American Christians and Middle East Christians, uh, there is something of a friction that, that happens. It's more true, I think, of evangelical Christians than it is of, of Catholics. Uh, but uh, I remember just uh, last year I was listening to uh, a Southern Baptist talk about um, the challenges they faced, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, because they had Egypt marked as mission territory. In other words, there are no Christians in Egypt. And of course, the Coptic Christian community said, there are millions of us, uh, nearly 10 million in Egypt. And we've been Christians uh, for about 1,500 years longer than this, uh, con before this continent was even recognized by, was even found by Europeans. So uh, they do have a very rich cultural heritage. And ju but just this conversation, uh, just this, this encounter that's taking place now between Middle East Christians and Western Christians, especially American Christians, is causing um, a lot of discussions that are many, many decades overdue to take place. And so, um, I have some bullet points here, things I'm going to cover. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to deviate from this almost immediately. But we, but the, the point I wanted to make there is that we do, most of us in this room, tend to think of our cultural Christian heritage as coming from Europe. And the truth is that it comes from the Middle East. And, um, and the millions who remain in the region need our help. They need Christians to advocate for them. And this is why we, um, of course, founded uh, IDC. Now I have a tendency to, to go off into boring, stale, uh, policy wonkish kind of uh, talks and, I, and I'm going to try and uh, avoid doing that this evening, but I think it does merit saying that uh, U.S. foreign policy is very complicated. It's not quite as simple as um, the United States are the good guys and um, 
uh, everybody else uh, in that part of the world are the bad guys. Uh, we've, we have, I would argue, made some injudicious decisions and uh, U.S. foreign policy is influenced by the ability to uh, advocate, to lobby for your um, for what you believe to be uh, the right thing. In some cases, that's um, very cold, realpolitik, um, shrewd, narrow, narrowly serving self-interest. And I'll give you an example. The, uh, the Turkish government has a fairly significant uh, lobby in the United States, and um, they've blocked the recognition of the Armenian genocide that took place a century ago. There are more than a million and a half Christians, most of them Armenian, but also Assyrians and Greeks who were uh, marched into the uh, deserts of Mesopotamia and Anatolia, south toward uh, Syria, murdered, butchered, slaughtered along the way, starved, and uh, when it was uh, the first genocide of the 20th century, and it was uh, quite horrific. It is denied officially by the Turkish government to this day. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, one of the initiatives of our organization has been to uh, bring the Turkish government, try to hold the Turkish government to account, but uh, it, it's uh, a source of some frustration, but the uh, interests of uh, the Turkish government, which are now uh, very militaristic and um, Islamist, and certainly Islamist-leaning, um, are more influential in Washington than anybody advocating for the Christians. It's just a fact. They have former speakers of the House, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, on their payroll. They, uh, I, was at a, I was at an event uh, with members of Congress and um, some others in Washington last year, and there were, uh, and one of the event that we were at was uh, in part funded by uh, a Turkish advocacy group. So, so this is kind of how the game is played in Washington. There's a lot that is um, for sale. And even those who are inclined to, uh, I won't mention any names, but even those who are very much inclined to, members of Congress, to, to view this issue favorably, you sit down with them and they'll say, I just came from fundraising. When I'm done meeting with you, I'm going back to fundraising. So, you know, what have you got? And uh, it is touching that many members of Congress will make time uh, for this. And there, there are some good members of Congress. There are some good men and women serving there. And we've had the good fortune of working with them. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, to have your voice heard, uh, it's, um, it's necessary that you come with uh, either pressure in the form of uh, uh, public pre pressure from the media, uh, from the general public, or organized advocacy. So this is what we're focused on. Last month we had our uh, annual convention and we had more than 50 members of Congress show up and for an organization as young and as uh, small as we are, that was, uh, that was very significant. And a lot of people have said, why is that, that uh, members of Congress are turning out for your organization for something for an, uh, a cause that's that's very young and uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, popular support doesn't have a lot of attention in the media doesn't have a lot of money behind it and I and I think the answer is that they um, don't want to be on the wrong side of history as part of the answer I think another part of the answer is that uh, a number of Middle East Christians um, in the diaspora living here in the United States um, very much like the communities where they came from they are they are leaders they're doctors they're lawyers they're businessmen they're very um, persuasive and uh, well-spoken, thoughtful, and uh, they are very good representatives um, for the people they've, for the relatives they've left behind in the Middle East. And this, uh, 
this um, exodus, I guess you would say, of Christians from the Middle East continues. And uh, one of the tensions we face is that, uh, and I think some of you may be aware of it, there were... Uh, and there was a movement by some evangelicals a couple of years ago which just said, well, let's get all the Christians out of the Middle East. Um, well, first of all, we're talking about about 15 million people scattered across a dozen countries, and many of them don't want to leave any more than any of you would want to just pack up and move to uh, Lebanon or Egypt. Um, so, so that's one of the challenges. Uh, but the Christians we meet, even, even refugees and displaced persons, all say the same thing. We would go back to our home uh, near many of them from Tel Kef and, and cities and villages nearby in the Nineveh Plain, which is the historic uh, homeland of Christians in, in Iraq. Um, but they need to be secure. And so this is why we're trying to uh, push our government to uh, bring in international partners to, to make it safe for the Christians to return. Um, uh, the um, Another strategic goal that I, that I would mention um, is that we want to, in Syria, help to create havens not just for uh, Christians but for other vulnerable groups. And um, whichever way the election goes, um, and I think, I, I mean, I have a sense of which way it is going to go, and if that does happen, I think it's going to be a very perilous situation for Christians in the Middle East because I think um, Secretary Clinton, if she's elected, is going to... Uh, probably be inclined to be to undertake a more aggressive and assertive muscular as they say uh, foreign policy approach in Syria and if that's done um, while I would never defend the crimes of the Assad regime it would it would imperil almost immediately uh, roughly a million Christians uh, many of whom are living in places like Aleppo city centers like Aleppo and Damascus uh, so um, the um, the one challenge that, that I would mention that Middle East Christians do face is that, um, uh, and this seems to come up again and again, uh, the Christians of the Middle East um, in this country are encountering uh, American Christians whose Christianity has been passed, sort of distilled through Europe and then it comes to the United States and American evangelical Christianity in particular has a means of kind of recycling itself and uh, uh, undergoing a series of rebirths and uh, some curious theologies come out of that. Uh, uh, dispensationalism, which I wasn't even aware of until a couple of years ago, uh, which is very tied to modern politics in the Middle East. Uh, there's something called dominionism. Um, which is a school that believes that in the end times the Christians will come into uh, take they will come to take dominion over um, the, the righteous will basically come in to take uh, power and control over culture and territory and property and and wealth and who knows whatever else which is a very strange and curious American kind of Christian theology and uh, the prosperity gospel, uh, which is kind of recycled Calvinism. So when Middle East Christians come and encounter these sorts of theologies, they're very baffled. Um, and they, uh, they just sort of think, I, so, so they find themselves looking at Middle East Christians and saying, you're speaking Arabic and you're speaking these Semitic languages I don't understand, and so you, you can't be Christian, you must be Muslims. You seem more like Muslims. And they don't distinguish the Christians from um, the Muslims. And, uh, and the Middle East Christians um, at the same time are baffled by the theology <coughs> of Westerners. So these are very real cultural realities that are deeply complicated. And, uh, and this cultural, cultural in encounter is going on. And one of the things that we're planning next year is to have uh, a convention with uh, American and predominantly evangelical 
Christians and, and Middle East Christians, and, um, and uh, I can just tell you that it's going to be um, something of a culture clash, but these are the sorts of encounters that need to happen uh, so that Americans can come to understand. And I, and I don't want to, um, I, I certainly don't want to say anything negative about uh, evangelicals because they have, many of them have been absolutely wonderful friends uh, to the Christians in this work and they're very thoughtful and they've traveled the region and understand the nuances and complexities of the Middle East and the need to advocate for our Christian brothers and sisters uh, across the region. So um, I think, uh, I guess I would ask this question, who here wants to move to Washington when they, when they graduate? Or who's even given thought to where they want to move? How many of you are going home? Who's going to Washington? We'll see, you know? Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of what I, the way I thought about this when I was a young man, and I suppose I had friends in Washington, and I suppose I um, thought I might, I might go there, and uh, and I and I did, and I I had had a lot of experiences before I came to Franciscan. I'd been in the military, I'd traveled fairly extensively, and I did that afterwards. Um, and it is, it, it can be a very uh, challenging, a very difficult place because it is. Um, I tell people very often that all the personality disorders that you can find in the DSM um, seem to have uh, uh, just gravitated to Washington, D.C. And so it's kind of a demoralizing place to live and to work um, and to try to do um, what's, uh, you, you know, we hope you're trying to do the right thing. And uh, uh, this was a, a summer where I spent um, a significant amount of time writing uh, three congressional resolutions. And it occurred to me at one point talking to a Hill staffer, I said, you know, if we wanted to get rich, we could be writing something about, you know, Wall Street or regulatory finance, finance financial regulatory, something I know nothing about. But, uh, and that does happen. Most of the people in Washington spend their time uh, trying to get access, trying to control the levers of power, trying to uh, um, steer things in the, toward their own narrow self-interest. And, um, and so with work like this, you're really going against something like that. But the reason I ask that question, who's going to Washington, is because uh, one thing I've noticed is that very much the most idealistic people are the ones who very quickly turn into uh, cynics, and they very much uh, and very quickly can, can burn out in a place like Washington, and they want to go along with um, the flow, so to speak. They want to do, they, 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 we tend to mimic. Humans just tend to mimic. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of young idealistic people get to places like Capitol Hill, which is ground zero for personality disorders, and uh, adopt some of the unfortunate habits of, of those around them. And uh, it, become, it can be kind of chic to, um, well, you, you almost um, find people who are mocking those who have values. And even in the foreign policy arena where you encounter a number of very impressive, um, polished public servants, it's, um, it's kind of passe to just approach something uh, like a human rights issue, uh, bringing just that human rights issue to bear. Uh, but one, um, so I'll ask this question. So any philosophy majors here? Okay. Would, would you want to take a stab at kind of summarizing Hegel's dialectic, or would you prefer not to? Okay, <laughs> probably, probably not reading a lot of Hegel here. So uh, a friend of mine who's a, a Middle East Christian American, uh, we were at a, a meeting on Capitol Hill before the passage of the genocide resolution earlier this year, and uh, 
And he, he spends a lot of time at the White House. Uh, he's a Democrat, very good guy. Uh, but uh, he said, listen, I think the biggest problem that we face as a community, community is the Hegelian dialectic. And uh, that was the most interesting thing I'd heard to that point. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. He must be onto something. What he, what he means by that is that the oppressor class, um, especially beginning with Enlightenment, philosophy, enlightenment thought. The, the church was seen as part of the oppressor class, and so a lot of Western intellectuals tend to regard uh, institutional Christianity as something that is part and parcel of the oppressor class. And so when they look at Middle East Christian um, religious leaders, they will say, well, you're part of, you're supportive of this dictator or of this regime or of this ideology that sustains you as a minority community but uh, has oppressed its, its people. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. There are some seeds of truth because Baathism um, was largely formulated by a Christian named uh, Michel Aflac. I, I, from what I know of him, I think he was probably an atheist, actually. So he was, a, he was more of a secular materialist who was looking for an organizing political principle other than uh, religious ideology. Uh, and these two things have largely been in tension in the modern era in the Middle East. Um, but back to the Hegelian dialectic. When you're talking to somebody who's third or fourth generation secular humanist who went to Princeton and uh, he studied Hegel and he looks at the Catholic Church and he has this understanding of the church and the Orthodox Church as being part of the oppressor class, when they meet Middle East Christians they think, so you're, the, uh, you're those who have benefited from the oppression of Sunni Muslims or of other Muslim people. And so there isn't a great deal of sympathy. So this is part of the, the problem. This is what he, this, this uh, uh, Assyrian fellow meant when he said um, the Hegelian dialectic is the biggest challenge that we face. And I think he's probably onto something there. And that, that's uh, not something that uh, a nonprofit organization can, can really focus a lot of energy into correcting. But we do try to educate leaders and we do try to make them see that it is in the interest of the U.S. government to uh, protect those who share our values and share our interests. And too often, I would say, especially in recent decades, we've been on the wrong side of a number of uh, uh, a, a number of um, um, policy initiatives undertaken in, in the Middle East, from military intervention to indirect military intervention. Um, last year, I was giving a talk at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, and uh, a young man from Yemen who had had half of his hand blown off came up to me and took me by the hand, and he said, "He said I'm from." Yemen, and your country is supporting the Saudi war against most of the Yemeni people. And, um, and he said, you know, this is something I've gotten several times, and it's always heartbreaking. He said, can you, can you help me? Um, and of course, I can't. Of course, I'm, I'm powerless, and it's a terrible feeling. Um, earlier this year, on March 4th, um, everyone knows the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's order. So in Aden, Yemen, uh, ISIS gunmen kicked the door down and murdered four missionaries of charity, absolutely, just brutally, horribly. And they um, tied them to trees, shot them, and then uh, bashed their skulls with uh, the butts of rifles. Um, this is something that the uh, religious communities across the Middle East face um, at every turn. I mean, they're they're. If you have a Roman collar or a, a Christian collar, the Orthodox wear 
what we call Roman collars as well, uh, or a habit, you're automatically a target for a violent extremist. So um, it really, uh, the courage of the Christians who, who remain there, particularly those who um, wear habits um, or who are men of the cloth, um, it, is, it takes profound courage for them to, to remain there, and yet so many do. And um, there are, uh, there's a group of nuns in, in Cairo, which is uh, not as violent. Uh, Egypt is, has not suffered as much of the um, terrible violence that's afflicted Iraq and Syria. Um, but uh, there are a group of nuns called the Sisters of Mahdi, and if anyone's ever going to Egypt, I would say, please make a point to go to Mahdi and see the sisters there. They treat uh, 100,000 uh, patients every year. 90% of them are, are Muslim. And uh, they can't afford health care. And these Coptic Catholic nuns, most Copts are Coptic Orthodox, um, but uh, there are Coptic Catholics. And, uh, and they, these sisters run a school, mostly for Muslim children, and they treat about 100,000 patients a year, as I said. And uh, so when Egypt a few years ago descended into political chaos, it was the men, the Muslim men of that neighborhood who joined arms and stood guard in the night um, around the convent to make sure that nobody laid a hand on, on the sisters because they were a prime target. So um, I, I tell that story to say, just remember that it is, it is much more complicated. And I always tell people those uh, men, those Muslim men in the Mahdi region, uh, the Mahdi district of Cairo did more than I've ever done for the Christians in the Middle East, and they did it very courageously. So, um, so remember that it is, that it is complicated, and, and th there is a role um, for the institutional church, and they've been very thoughtful in the approaches, um, especially Bishop Gregory Mansour, who's a Maronite. Um, he's actually half Lebanese, half uh, Palestinian, I believe, but he's a Maronite bishop in, here in the United States, um, a wonderful man, and leaders like that. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to so many uh, members of the Middle East Christian diaspora who um, have made, um, made this work possible. But we have, uh, we have a very, very long way to go. And, uh, and so I would ask, to the extent that you're able to give it, um, uh, whether it's uh, emailing a member of Congress. Uh, most of you are in college, so you don't know who your member of Congress is, I'm guessing. I remember being there. but. Uh, uh, I, I live in Washington. I live in Maryland. I'm not, I have a vague sense of who my member of Congress might be. But, uh, uh, but it is important to, um, to let elected officials know that this is an issue that you care about and that you're a voter. So, um, you know, with that, I, I would um, uh, just say that it's, it really is wonderful to be back here at this university. And thank you to Isabel and everybody who uh, has uh, been a voice for the martyrs and a voice for the Christians in the Middle East. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.